0: If you would, please open your Bibles to the book of Joel, which is a nice, easy one to find in there. I actually picked it as a test just to see if y'all could find it quickly. No, I'm just kidding. It takes me a moment, too, if I don't have it marked. Easy to flip past. While you're turning there, I'll go ahead and give a bit of an introduction So imagine you're just minding your own business, you're going about life as usual with your family, you're working or at home or you're eating a meal, and a natural disaster strikes. Whether you're sitting in the town of Pompeii and Mount Vesuvius has erupted and buried the town in a pile of ash, or tsunamis have struck a coastal area and they've destroyed buildings, washed things away. Whether it's Mount St. Helens erupting, or New Orleans after Katrina, destroying levees Flooding the city, causing deaths, causing billions in damages. Whether it's tornadoes leveling the city of Mobile. Or perhaps it's earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, killing tens of thousands of people. When you start to think about these natural disasters and the devastating toll that they take, people are often led to the question, why? Why did these things happen? Why did an earthquake hit an area that killed literally tens of thousands of people and the death toll keeps climbing as they keep working to clear things? Why did these things happen that level things and lead to literally billions in damages? Rebuilding that takes years, sometimes decades, if they ever can rebuild. How do we account for these horrible disasters that take lives, destroy property, and then ultimately leave us feeling unsafe? Well, today we're going to be looking at what the prophet Joel has to tell us about God's sovereignty over even natural disasters. So if we go to the world to try to answer this question, we're never going to find an answer. But if we go to the scripture, God has promised to meet us there and to enlighten our minds to his truth. We don't have to worry about seemingly random events in the world because God is sovereign and he is both the creator, our redeemer, and our judge. And the main point of this sermon is going to prove that because God is sovereign, we must know that he is the only worthy judge and savior. So a few background remarks on the book of Joel, because we're going to be launching into a study of Joel over the next few weeks. Now, there's a lot of debate first over the dating of Joel. And honestly, it doesn't make that big a difference in the dating of Joel, because everything in it still applies, but nonetheless, it's probably around 500 B.C. So this is shortly after Israel has returned to their land after the Babylonian exile. Now, talking about the author, Joel, we really don't know much about Joel, the son of Bethuel. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and he's not connected with any of the other biblical Joels. But we do know that the setting of the book is Jerusalem, where Joel probably lived. And he was likely from a priestly family. Based on how he writes, he's very focused on the priesthood and refers to the priests a lot. So some major themes to watch for as we work through this book are God's sovereignty, repentance, and the day of the Lord, which we're going to dig in a little bit more as we get into the sermon. So with that introduction, with those background remarks out of the way, let's read Joel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your father's? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament, like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up. The fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up. And gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day. For The day of the Lord is near. And as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods and the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan! The herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you because the water books are dried up and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Now, as we read through that rather intense passage, there's one overwhelming theme which we should have noticed. Israel is in a very bad situation. They're undergoing horrible events. But we also see one major theme that's shining through even those events. God is the one in control over all things, even those horrible events. So this is the first point that we're going to look at this morning. Because God is sovereign, we must know that he is in control over all creation. So verse 1 sets the stage for the book. God speaks through his prophet to his people. God is the active voice working through His servant. Joel's name really adds to this statement as well because Joel means Yahweh is God. So the message we hear from the very beginning of the book is that God is the active one speaking to His people. Verse 2 then gives us a command which we need to remember for the rest of the book. Joel says, hear this. Now the Hebrew word is not just a listening. It doesn't just mean open your ears. It's an active call to listen, to take heed of, and to obey the message. The same word is used in Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Psalms, where it's translated as obey. So another way to say this is listen to these words and be changed by them. Joel addresses two groups of people. The first are the elders, or literally the old here. Joel then addresses all of Israel. And he calls on these two groups in order to emphasize that the disaster they are dealing with is unparalleled. Not only are the old unable to remember anything like it, but neither can anyone else. So because of this uniquely horrific event, Joel tells everyone that it is their duty to tell the coming generations about what has happened. So our anticipation as readers should be growing. What is this event which needs to be told to the coming generations? Well, verse 4 gives us the answer, locusts. So if, like me, you're not an expert on locusts, let me give you a few facts real quickly. A swarm of locusts can contain up to 10 billion locusts. Up to 1,000 newly hatched locusts can fit on one square foot of ground. Locusts can travel up to 3,000 miles in their lifetime. Think about it, they're that big. In one day, a swarm can eat the equivalent of what it takes to feed 40,000 people for a year. Just one historical example, in 1958, Ethiopia lost 167,000 metric tons of grain. That's enough food to feed over a million people for over a year. But the problem is not just what the locusts can eat in a moment. The devastation from a locust plague is long-lasting. It takes really two years to recover from a locust plague because they eat your food, they eat your animal's food, And in the end, all starve and all are affected in the community. So the older Israelites, they would have seen locust plagues before. This was not something uncommon. But not one that compared to this locust plague. Now, Joel uses Hebrew imagery and he uses numbers to further explain the plague, to further give emphasis. So there are three phrases describing the locust following a pattern. What this locust left, the next has eaten. Now, in the Bible, three is a very important number. Three is the number of perfection. We say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. There are three persons in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. In the Apostles' Creed, we say, on the third day, Jesus rose again from the dead. So, giving three lines and three types of locusts is a way to explain how comprehensive the plague was. The locusts are fully, totally, and even perfectly destructive fulfilling their mission. One verse 5, Joel calls on the drunkard to awake, to weep, to wail. Those who rely on luxuries or distractions to numb the pain or to avoid reality, their medication is about to be stripped away from them. Drunkenness is not going to help them endure the plague and the sorrow that will ensue. But also in Israel, wine represented joy and wealth and happiness. Was some of the most valued produce of the land. So the locusts have destroyed, in a sense, happiness itself in Israel. As we move into verses 6 and 7, we're told of the destructive power of the locusts. They're like a huge, powerful army coming to attack and destroy. Joel compares them to the brutal power of a lion's jaw. Now, when I was reading through this passage, I, I'm, I'm a very curious person, so I had to look up how powerful is a lion's jaw? The lions have 30 teeth, and they have a very powerful bite force. If you want to look at a big dog, you're talking about 325 PSI worth of bite force. If you go up to a great white shark, you're talking 625. The lion is 650. It's very powerful jaws. And so it's to those jaws that Joel compares these locusts. And these locusts strip everything away. With their jaws. They destroy like a wood chipper, tearing through everything in their path. You just get the sense that this had to be a horrific event to live through. So, the question that was coming into many Israelites' minds, or at least had to be, is where is God? Is He there? Did He allow this? Did He give up on us and leave? We know that the great Creator God is sovereign over everything, even locusts. So the locust terrified everyone in Joel's day, but what should have been more terrifying to the Israelite is that the Lord is the one who sent this locust plague upon Israel. Matthew Henry's talking about the locust says this, Man is said to be a worm, and by this it appears that he is less than a worm. For when God pleases, worms, speaking about the locusts, are too hard for him. Plunder his country, eat up that for which he has labored, destroy the forage, and cut off the subsistence of a potent nation. So why would God send locusts against Israel, his own people? Which all told us to hear, which means we need to listen and we need to obey. So what is it that God required of Israel, and what does he require of us? That takes us to the second point. Because God is sovereign, we must know that he alone is to be worshipped. God alone is to be worshipped. So back in verse 5, Joel told the drunkard to weep. Now in verse 8, he uses the image of a virgin mourning for the death of her new husband before they were able to enjoy any part of marriage. So a woman in this situation, she would have lost her security and would have trouble ever being remarried. The groom's early death also means that he would not have produced an heir. And not having an heir meant that your name would be blotted out in Israel's record. That's one of the worst things that could happen to you in Israel. So really the picture is pure bitterness and grief and pain. But verse 9 presents the greatest reason to weep and mourn in this passage. The temple functions have ceased and this fellowship with God and worship has been cut off. All the offerings of the priests have ceased and the priests are dismayed as a result. And the priests don't just weep because they cannot perform their duties. They also mourn because they lived off of a portion of the sacrifices brought to the temple. As Levites, that was their inheritance, is to live off of those things. So their job and their source of food were gone. Verse 10 tells us that the very ground that they walked on mourned. Now, Joel likes to use personification, which is applying human attributes to non-human things. In other words, things are so bad that the ground is doing something that normally only people should be doing. Just look at the extent of the destruction in verses 11 and 12. The harvest, what you need to live on in the future, is gone. It's ruined. All of it. The life-preserving food is gone as well as the luxuries. All this, and we've still not addressed the real question. Why is all this falling on Israel? Why would God send all these horrible things upon his own people? We'll look at verses 13 and 14. The priests are told to put on sackcloth, lament, wail, fast, assemble, and cry out to God for help. Now, the word call out is not the same idea as asking for help with carrying in the groceries, which, of course, is a man carrying in an armful. I would never do. This word is used in times of extreme need to cry out to the Lord for rescue. All of these commands are in the language of return. Israel needs to return to God, which means... They were not following God. They weren't. Israel had walked away from Yahweh, and they were experiencing the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28, which if we had time, we could go and read through them. But we, for the sake of time, we won't do that this morning. But instead God totally wiping, instead of God totally wiping them out for their rebellion, which they would have deserved, he brought locusts to humble them and to drive them to repentance. So our text is really a call to return to Yahweh and to remain faithful. And part of that call is to return, is to acknowledge that there is no one else but God. Now Joel uses the phrase, your God, seven times in this short three-chapter book. Furthermore, Joel calls on the covenant name Yahweh. So Israel may be under judgment, but God has not abandoned them. The Lord is Israel's covenant God, and he was working to call them back to himself. God requires true worship. The priesthood and the nation of Israel had become impure. They had become corrupt. They were not giving pure worship. They were being idolatrous and faithless. But God is faithful. And he is being faithful to call them back to repentance through the locusts and through his prophets. So the answer to the problem of the locust plague was not to introduce comprehensive priestly reforms. It was not to get the right government Uh, program in place, it was not even to elect the right leader. The answer to the plague was to return to the Lord in repentance and to give Him pure and wholehearted worship. Because the Lord wants our worship. He is jealous for our worship. But when we fail to worship Him faithfully, we must return to Him. So when you feel your feet slipping, or it seems like your faith is hanging on by a tiny thread, there's only one place to run in that moment. We have to cry out to God for mercy and for him to grant us the faith to believe and to obey. So point 3, because God is sovereign, we must know that he is our only hope and refuge. In Revelation 22:20, 20, Christ says, "Surely I'm coming soon." To which John replies, "Amen. Come, Lord Jesus." Now, how many of you on a regular basis say, come quickly, Lord Jesus? I know I say it to myself quite often. Ironically, most often is while I'm watching the news. Whether it's balloons flying over the U.S. and being shot down eventually, whether it's mass shootings, whether it's our own government, whether it's the war in Ukraine, regardless, it's easy in those moments to say, yes, Lord, come back quickly. But imagine you said that, and at that moment, Christ returned. What would that be like? Do you truly understand what it would be like? Do we really realize what it is we're asking for? In verse 15, Joel introduces the theme of the day of the Lord. Now, one commentator describes the day of the Lord as the dynamic intervention of Yahweh in human affairs. It's a nice technical definition. Now, that sounds like a great thing. God entering in, especially when Israel's dealing with this awful locust plague. But Joel here does not present God's visitation as a joyful thing. Joel says, alas for the day. Now the day of the Lord refers to the victory that the Lord will achieve on that day. God, the great warrior king, will come and conquer over all his enemies and exact judgment on evil. So Israel saw this day as only a joyful event. What they did not understand is that with judgment also comes destruction. And the destruction of Joel's day came from the hand of their God. So the day of the Lord in Joel's day was the locust plague. Now, when we think of the day of the Lord, we think of Christ's final return. And rightly so. But in Joel, it is not referring to God's final judgment day yet. And this is where we need to understand what the day of the Lord is and how Joel is using it. The locust plague on Israel was a day of the Lord. It's a day in which God visited his people to judge them and to lead them to repentance. God visited his people in Joel's day for judgment. God's visit in Joel's day was a judgment day, but it was not the final judgment day. And that's the distinction that we need to make here. So every time God sends judgment on the world, it's pointing us to that final judgment when Christ will return and judge the earth. So all the natural disasters, all the plagues, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, whatever it may be, they're meant to direct our thinking back to God and to point us in repentance to God in faith. So God's visit in Joel's day was to judge, to rebuke, and to correct Israel. She needed to be driven to repentance. She needed to be pushed back to her covenant God from whom she had run. But that day was also a foreshadowing of what the final judgment day would be like. Let's look at the other descriptions Joel provides. In verse 16, Israel is starving. Now, that's more than enough reason to mourn. I I don't eat lunch and I'm starving. But Joel tells us that the real reason to grieve is that they are separated from the fellowship of their God. Israel walked away from the covenant to serve other gods and the idols of their hearts. And you cannot have true fellowship with God while rejecting Him and living your own selfish life. So to rebel against the Lord is to set yourself at war with Him. And to do so is to forfeit any sense of peace or joy that you can have in this life. Verses 17 and 18 brings in the imagery of a severe drought. Nothing can even grow under the dry clods of dirt. There's so little food that nothing can even be stored up. Consequently, all the food storage building, all the granaries, they're just worthless structures. Instead, they're sitting there mocking the Israelites as they sit empty. Now, the Jews were mourning, but in the text we're told that even the animals were mourning. The animals were hungry, and they were very noisy because of it. When a baby's hungry, it cries. Livestock are the same way. When they're hungry, they're going to be noisy. There was not even grass for the animals to eat. We're told that even the sheep are hungry. That might seem like an odd thing to add, but apparently sheep can dig down and get to the roots of what a lot of other animals can't, even when the drought is really severe. But here, there's not even roots for the sheep to dig down and eat. So again, we're back to the question, why would God bring this chaos in Israel? What were they supposed to do to get relief from this disaster? Well, Joel shows us what to do in the aftermath of the plague. He calls out to God for mercy. In his desperation and suffering, Joel prayed to his God, to the covenant God of Israel, for help. He cried out to the only God who was sovereign over the locusts, the animals, and even the Israelites. Joel likens the devastation to a fire. The fire could be a metaphor for the devastation that the locusts caused, or it could have been a literal fire. You think of the California wildfires that destroy everything in their path, and behind it's just a charred landscape. Verse 20 then gives us another interesting picture. The animals are said to call out to God in the chaos. Imagine this the sheep and the cows are crying out to God. There are a couple of points I want to note on that. First, there's an interconnectedness between man's obedience and creation. Because of Israel's rebellion, God brought judgment against them and forced them into a call to repentance. But the judgment did not skip over the animals in the ground. They suffered because of man's sin. And we need to remember that fact that sin leads to death and judgment and suffering. Israel's sin was a direct cause of this locust plague and the animal's suffering. This may also remind you of Romans 8, where creation groans as we eagerly await the renewal of our bodies and a new heavens and a new earth and glory. Creation was subjected to futility in the first place because of man and sin. And in a sense, it's going to be redeemed on the last day along with mankind. The second thing to note is the sharp contrast in the passage between the animals and all the people that Joel is speaking to. Joel called on Israel to weep and mourn like a drunkard that has lost his wine or like a betrothed virgin. That has lost her husband. Joel commanded the priest to mourn, to weep, to wail, to repent. And to all the people, God commanded, repent and return to your covenant, God. Remember what Joel just told us about these animals? They're already calling out to God for help in their suffering. We're not told if the people are even listening to Joel, definitely not if they're obeying. But the animals who cannot reason or understand know what to do. How ironic. This is an argument from lesser to greater, and Jesus loved to make those arguments in the Gospels. For instance, if the birds can trust God to care for them, how much more are you who are made in God's image? Well, the animals know they need to call out to God, while the people, God's covenant people, are clueless. Even the animals knew what to do in this passage. So what does this tell us about Joel's audience? It tells us that they are hard-hearted, rebellious, and a calloused people. They don't have the sense of a sheep or a cow. They're faithless, rebellious, and dumber than cows. Well, how do we wrap up a text like this? What can we draw out from Joel's horrible circumstances in the rebellion of Israel, and how can we turn around and apply that to our lives? I'm going to ask you a couple questions which may shock and possibly offend you, but I think that's where the passage is leading us and asking us of readers. First, do you have the sense of a goat? Second, are you smarter or dumber than a cow? Well, if you are faithfully following Christ, repenting of your sin and resting in Him alone for your salvation by faith, then you are much smarter than any animal. But if you are in rebellion to God, if you are faking your faith, if you are trusting in the idols of your heart or this world, then this text is a call to you to repent and to return to the Lord of all creation. We have a God who is sovereign over all things. He is over everything, even locust plagues. He is Lord of all creation, and he is in control of locusts, wildfires, earthquakes, you name it. He is our creator, and he deserves our worship. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning, and the End, and the Infinite God. We can't give him half-hearted worship and expect things to go well. We can't give the one who redeemed us half of our heart. We deserve judgment and death and locusts and plagues. Left to ourselves, that's what we have earned. But we can praise God that through his only Son, he has redeemed us from death and hell. He has redeemed us from these plagues. That's where we can say, Praise Christ, because he is judge and savior. So as you look at the chaos of the world around you, don't despair. As you see earthquakes and horrible natural disasters, don't be in terror. The trials that come upon us and the disasters which come upon us in this sinful world are God's faithful, gracious, and merciful calls to come to him and to repent and to trust in Christ. He's the only safe shelter from these storms that come upon the earth. So if you're hearing this message and you are not a believer, Joel calls on you to weep, mourn, repent, and come to Christ for mercy. Outside of Christ, there is no salvation, but only judgment and death. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Christ came and died to give us life and salvation. He gave us a way to the Father through his own flesh. There's no other judge or savior like the Lord Jesus Christ. Because our King says, come unto me all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Outside of Christ, there is no peace, there is no rest, there is only judgment. But in Christ, brothers and sisters, there is peace and there is rest for your souls. May we all have that peace this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have given us peace your sacrifice, that your death on our account has given us life, that even though we may indeed see natural disasters in our lifetime, Lord, we know you are sovereign over these things. And we do ask that whenever those moments strike, that we would use those times to proclaim the gospel, to challenge our own hearts, to see if we have been walking away, to see if we have been unrepentant in any way. Lord, drive us on to holiness. Use these things to strengthen us and to build us up. Make us more into the image of Christ, we pray. We pray this in his name. Amen.